good morning, and greet you in Jesus' name, and welcome to our service. Certainly enjoyed it thus far, and appreciate the uh, thoughts that were shared in the devotional and Sunday school lesson. Um, very, very thought-provoking, very timely. For a short time here this morning, I would like to, to speak on a perhaps a unique topic, and this this comes from a conversation I had with a gentleman not not so long ago. That uh, he uh, he became a Christian some time back, a few years ago, and um, he was a man that had lived in in uh, I guess you would say the typical American life, unfortunately, and and knows a lot about living in the depths of sin. He became a Christian, and uh, he said that he, he senses victory in, in a lot of areas of life, or at least there's pr- progress there. But there is um, a certain part of his life that he is just making absolutely no progress. And it's, it's as bad today as it was whenever he was converted. And, um, and in his particular case, he, uh, when things irritate him, he becomes just uncontrollably angry, and he just says things, somewhat like our, our Sunday school lesson here, that are just completely out of order and not, not at all Christian. And he gave me an illustration of, of one a recent time that he had blown up, and he told me exactly what he said, and I had to agree that certainly was not Christ-like whatsoever. So his question to me was, so what is wrong with me? Am I not a Christian? Um, Am I, was I at one time a Christian and now I'm just a full-blown apostate and there's no, no hope for me? What, what's my problem? Why do I have this issue? Or is this just me? Is this just the way I am? And it was a fair question and I don't know this gentleman very well and so my, my answer was that I simply don't know you well enough to make a real judgment on anything. I don't know, I don't know what the progress is in the rest of your life. You're, you know, I have your testimony, but that's, that's as much. I haven't, haven't really had time to observe you or the opportunity to observe you, so I can't really say much more than that. But I guess that led my, my, um, my thoughts to this thing of how much or should, maybe is the question, a Christian have a Let's just call it a besetting sin that he just can't make progress on. Or how much of that can a person have in his life and still retain the word Christian and still give the testimony that he is indeed a Christian? How, how does this work? I'm not sure I'm able to give you the answer to that this morning, but we're going to poke around at it a little bit. And there's a few things that came to my mind that I'm going to give you and then I want you to go home with what I shared and see if you can reach some conclusions or ascertain whether I have reached any, any um, uh, right conclusions on the matter as well. So there's three things that, that I want to just look at and then kind of draw them together. I want to look at one significant change that stands out to me when we look in the Bible at what happens to a person when he is indeed converted. I want to look at that specifically. Then I want to look at a few scriptures of what the Bible specifically, without a shadow of a doubt, calls sin. Okay, it says, this is sin. There's four scriptures I came up with. I'm not saying that's exhaustive, but there's at least four scriptures in the Bible that say, this is sin. 
And then I would like to uh, analyze this whole issue that I just explained, you know, the Christian, how he relates to sin, how how this thing of how much of this besetting sin can a Christian actually have and still be a Christian? Is that possible? All right. Let's go back to the first point. So one of the things that has stood out to me in the somewhat recent past, but I've, I've noticed this as I read through the Bible, it always kind of stands out to me in the New Testament that one of the effects of the new birth that is that it that comes over and over again, and I've limited the texts that I'm going to give to you today just simply because we don't have the time to go to them all, but there is quite a catalog of them, and that is that the mind, our mind, undergoes a change when we are saved, all right? And I'm just going to point out a few verses that, that give this. So in Matthew 22, as you remember the account there, there was a lawyer that says, comes to Jesus, and he tempted him, and he said, Master, What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, well, here it is. He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Okay? And he said, the second is like unto it. You should love your neighbors yourself. Now, I'm just going to, there's much more to that story, but that's the only, that's the only part of it I'm going to pull out here. Jesus says that part of this, this, this great commandment is loving God with your mind. Now, it is some interest to me that what Jesus quoted here is actually known in the Jewish culture as the Shema. If you would go back to Deuteronomy 6, 4, that's the passage he quoted right here. And it's somewhat, you could call it the, uh, the Jewish confession of faith. And I'm going to read it out of Deuteronomy. It goes like this in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy, you would think you want to say mind. In Deuteronomy, it says might. It says all your might. Jesus says with all your mind. Now, I looked up those words specifically, and they do indeed mean two different things. The, the mind means just what we think of. Might means a lot with everything you got. Now, you just think about this. Was Jesus changing things a little bit there? I think he was, and I'll tell you why I think he was. Let's go to the next uh, passage in Hebrews 8.10. It's talking about the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant. And this is the bottom line difference that the Hebrew writer points out to his to his readers, and that includes us today. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put their law, my law in their minds and in their hearts. And then in verse 11 it says, there will be a... I'm sorry, I should turn to that passage. I'm going to get this mixed up. Um, Hebrews 8 and verse 10, I believe that is. All right, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. All right, I'll just stop reading right there. So, again, all I want to point out here is that there is a change in the mind. All right, let's just, that's the part that I want us to get. You know, with this thing of the mind... 
A born-again person has a new dimension of loving God. You know, in the Old Testament, I think a lot of the a lot of the reason people did what they did is the way I would deduct is because if you didn't, you'd be stoned. Okay, it was more coercion. And you can force a person, you can threaten a person, you can coerce a person to do just about anything on pain of penalty. And that was somewhat the motivation in the Old Testament. But if you can change his mind and get him to do it voluntarily, and because he believes in it, you've got a completely different thing going on. In the New Testament, Jesus says that the mind will be different. All right, just a couple more scriptures in Romans 12:1, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And now here's the verse that I really want to highlight. And be not conformed to this world. Or you could say, do not have the habit of being fashioned to this world. Now here's what you should do. Be ye transformed... By the renewing of your mind. And once that happens, the result will be that we will be able to prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. All right. Just very, very easy to understand. And if you read the rest of Romans 12, and it would be good for us to do so, but we won't. But you read it on your own time sometime. And what the rest of that chapter says is it explains what a renewed mind will think and do and act. And it will do some things that are very odd to the unrenewed mind, okay? To the want to the mind that has never been renewed. It says things like loving enemies and things like that. Doesn't happen whenever the mind is not renewed. Ephesians four has a very, very similar phrase. Paul says to the Ephesian church, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that ye put on the new man, which after God has created it in righteousness and true holiness. And again, he launches and the rest of the chapter explains what that looks like. One more reference I'm going to point you to. 2 Timothy 1.7. Paul tells Timothy, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. All right? A sound mind. What's a sound mind? A sound mind is one that is safe and accurate for making decisions. And I really think that that is God's gift to the redeemed. Um, Basically, the way I understand the scripture, when a person makes that choice to reach out and accept Jesus' blood and, and, and what Jesus did for his redemption, he is given that gift of the Holy Spirit. And that is where he pulls his resource from to inform his mind. And that that mind is renewed, and it thinks differently. And it's something that the world cannot understand. It just can't. All right, so now let's just leave that for a minute, and let's uh, explore the second question. So what is sin? What does the Bible call sin? This isn't exhaustive, but this is four scriptures that we can say with absolute certainty that these things are sin. The first two are very objective. In 1 John 3, 4, John says says it this way, Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law. And then he defines it, he says, For sin is the transgression of the law. Okay? I'm going to read it in the Amplified. 
It's maybe a little easier. Everyone who practices sin is guilty of lawlessness. For that is what sin is. It is the breaking and violating of God's law by transgression or neglect, being unrestrained and unregulated by his commands and his will. So it's very clear. An unwillingness to be guided and led by God and live in clear obedience to the commands that God has revealed in his word. So you have to ask the question, can I as a Christian break this and still be a Christian? Can I habitually transgress and still say I'm a Christian? Hardly, according to this according to this um, passage here. I think there is a, a caveat here a little bit. What if I don't know what the law is? What if I'm on a road somewhere, and I would really like to know what the speed limit is, but I don't know. I, I, it's not posted, and I don't know. Am I breaking the speed limit if the speed limit, say, is 55 and I'm going 65? I don't know what it is. So am I transgressing the law? Well, yes, I am. But there is an accountability thing there. I'm, can I really be accountable? Um, am I brought under guilt? I'm free of guilt because I don't know what it is, right? But I'm still technically breaking the law. I think uh, if you would read through Romans 7, it clearly points out that sin is made exceedingly sinful by the exposure to the law. In other words, Paul says, that's when I really got guilty. That's when I felt really bad is when, when the law came and I knew that I was breaking that law. All right? So... I, I want to. I'm not sure I can articulate this the way I'd like to, but there is a certain amount of knowledge that goes into this thing. If I know, and I know what the law is, and I break that law purposely, that is sin. If I don't know what it is, um, well, we'll touch on that a little bit later. But I think perhaps there is. That's where. Um, us as humans have to leave that alone, and maybe God has to be the judge in some of those cases. I'm going to I'm going to touch on that just a little bit later, so we'll leave that there for now. All right, another passage out of First John. John is really uh, good at identifying this. In John First John five seventeen, he puts it like this: very simple. All unrighteousness is sin. This that all unrighteousness is sin. Well, what is unrighteousness? Well, we go back to the book of Romans, and uh, Paul identifies this fairly succinctly in Romans 1. You know, Romans 1 is that uh, that chapter that identifies kind of that downward progression of a person that just is bent on not retaining God and his knowledge. He puts it that way. I'm going to read this to you. And even though they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Okay, now we circle back to the mind thing. So there was something happened in their mind when they did not retain God in their knowledge. And they they began to do those things which are not convenient. The next verse says, they were filled with all unrighteousness. And then it goes through a whole laundry list of what unrighteousness is. Fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding. Again, a mind thing. Covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, which basically means without conscience, 
unmerciful, unmerciful. That's unrighteousness. That's quite a list, and I'm not sure it's exhaustive, but Paul's got writer's cramp about then and said, that should be good enough. That, sh- that, that gives you an idea of what unrighteousness is. So again, I, we have to ask the question, can a Christian do these things habitually and still be a Christian? And I think the answer begins to be obvious. I don't think you can. I don't think you can. Two other scriptures that are maybe a bit more subjective and I find interesting in the New Testament, in this whole thing of definition of sin, James 4.17, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Um, That could maybe mean a different thing to me than it does to Alan, perhaps. Because Alan knows a good thing that he's neglecting, and I know a good thing that I'm neglecting, perhaps. And there may be two different things. But because we know to do the good thing and we're neglecting it, it's sin to both of us. If I have been informed by the Spirit of God, by the reading of His Word, or in some other way that I'm doing something that isn't right, or I should do something that is good and I don't do it, James says it can become sin. I think uh, Jesus gave us a little illustration of that in Luke 7 when he talks about the servant that knew his Lord's will. He knew what he was supposed to do, but he didn't prepare himself. And he did not according to the Lord's will. It says this person will be beaten with many stripes. Then it talks about the person that did not know, and he did the same thing. He committed things worthy of stripes as well. But because he didn't know, he was only given a few. And that perhaps goes back to the first point we were that we were talking about. You know, sin is sin. And after all, just because you don't know it doesn't necessarily mean it isn't sin. But God is a just God. And I think if we really want to do the, the right thing, eventually we will know if that thing is sin or not. But God is very just. And uh, he, will, he will recompense the people according to what his just judgment dictates. All right, the last one I'm going to, uh, to go to, and this one is the one that I parked on and thought about the longest and probably don't know if I've still concluded it properly, but it is a very intriguing scripture to me. And that is in Romans 14. It's a chapter, very interesting chapter, about where Paul is saying, There's a bit of diversity here. You know, one person says he can eat, you know, meat, and the next guy says, I can only eat vegetables. One guy says, I'm going to observe this day as a holy day, and the other guy says, I'm not. And Paul goes through this thing, and and he tries to address the subject and how that if I offend Cleon by not observing a day that Cleon really thinks I should observe, I'm offending Cleon, and that's not a good thing. On the same hand... If Cleon decides to um, not observe that day because I don't, Cleon may be putting his own self in jeopardy, his own soul in jeopardy, because he's violating his conscience. It's it's a read that every time I sit down and read it, I'm like, you know what, we really got to be careful about this thing, about violating our own conscience and about violating our brother's conscience, because both could, could run us amok if we allowed it to. I'm going to read this, 
this this verse, Romans fourteen twenty three, it's a very I think the very last verse, and it says, "He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin." Okay, now I'm going to read this in the Amplified because for me this is a little easier to understand. It goes like this, the man who has an uneasy conscience about eating and then eats. In other words, you, you, you don't know if you should actually do this, but you go ahead and you do it. And perhaps you do it because of another person's influence. He stands condemned before God because he is not true to his convictions and does not act from faith. For whatever does not originate from faith is sin. Or in other words... Whatever is done without a conviction of its approval by God is sinful. Now, that's just a lot to digest there. And, and I want you to think about that. But as I, as I read through that chapter and thought about what this verse means, I'll just say this. Let's all of us be very careful about running roughly over our conscience or easily trashing good practice. It has always been of some interest to me how that um, there's, there seems to be a, a path that many people have tried to travel and almost never can succeed on that path. And that path is where they are quite willing to call certain practices, perhaps, legalism or something equal to that and cast them easily aside. And we would agree in, in when I would not have any disagreement that a certain practice is not salvation. However, it is an aid. And I find that very few of people that travel that road find themselves at a good spot 20 years down the road. That, that's just been my observation. And I wonder if it doesn't come back to this passage as I read it. If I easily trample over my conscience, easily trample over good things that I have been taught, that, that could be a sin to me. That could end up being sin to me. You think about that. My, my, uh, my conclusion, my challenge to me and, and to you is if my conscience bothers me about a thing, stop and consider why. Sometimes our consciences do need to be adjusted to the truth. I mean, it could be a Muslim would have an issue with eating a pig. We're not bothered by that. But perhaps that Muslim needs to think through why he is now willing to eat that pig. All right? If he becomes a Christian, whatever. Maybe that's a bad illustration because we're not even illustration illustrating apples to apples here hardly, but but be careful. Just be careful. Adjust your conscience if it needs to be, but make sure that when you do the action, it is well thought through, and that you have arrived at this conclusion very biblically. Okay, that brings us to the, the next part here. So let's let's bring these two things together now and ask the question, how much sin can I tolerate in my life habitually practice, and still be a Christian. This man that I was talking with, there was two conflicting verses in his mind that he was trying to bring together, and this is what was causing him the problem. So the first verse that he was having a problem with is in uh, verse 
30 of Ephesians 4. And this is a go-to verse that that is, I think, brought out of context many times and misused. And it goes simply like this. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So now if you take that just as a standalone verse, it would sound like that as I, if I'm a Christian, I am sealed. I cannot lose my salvation. I'm sealed. Um, that's it. All right? So we have that. I would just like to point out that that word sealed actually would be better translated perhaps marked. I'm a marked person. So perhaps we should read it more like this, whereby ye are marked unto the day of redemption. So a person that is in possession of the Holy Spirit is going to be a different person. His mind's going to think differently, right? So it's that mark that he has until the final day of redemption. I think that we need to go back to put context to that verse. We need to go back to Ephesians 1 and verse 13. And I think this this explains Ephesians 4.30 just a bit better. And I'm going to read these verses to you. It says, In whom, or in Christ, ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth. So there was a, a hearing of the truth. And that truth was the gospel of your salvation. After which ye heard, ye believed. And after you believed, and, and get this, how this is a, a, an action of the mind, ye were sealed. You were marked with the Holy Spirit of promise. Which is the earnest, or which is the down payment of your inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory? So we have, we have this verse, okay? So now I want you, if you would, just to turn to uh, Hebrews 6. Now here's a here's a, a set of verses that make it sound quite different. Hebrews six verses uh, four through six. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they should fall away. To renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Flip back to Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27, very similar wording. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a fearful, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour, devour the adversaries. Now just uh, go to Second Peter yet. One more verse here. Second Peter 2 and verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it, ha- but it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So that those three passages give a bit of a different 
thought process. It, 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 it sounds very much like we have a, a person, an individual, that knew what it was to be a Christian. He was a Christian. He knew that. He experienced it. And there is, for some reason, there was a turning away, and he became, he became a damned individual, worthy of God's judgment. And some of the passages would almost imply that there was the hope of him recovering his position that he once held was indeed slim. And that is what this, <clears throat> this individual was, rec- was, was, um, was wrestling with. Which is it? Am I sealed or am I apostate? Certainly there's got to be an in-between, doesn't there? And that's what I'd somewhat like to, <clears throat> to say this morning. Certainly there's something in between that. In these latter passages that we read, there does seem to be a deliberate turning away uh, or a deliberate um, disobedience of some sort, it would seem like, uh, in my mind, is the way it would read. So to try to make sense of this, as I said before, when a person is saved, he receives the Holy Spirit, and with this aid of the Spirit, he now can make new decisions and new choices based on new information. This is a resource that he receives to help him make good, solid choices with his mind. That's what it is. However, while that happens, I think we would all agree that there's that old nature that's still there, just simply because we live in this body and we live in a world of sin. And there's still that sin nature there that at any time, just like Ellis ably pointed out, something pops out that you didn't even know was there hardly. And, and it's somewhat because it's not like it's eradicated. It's, it's still there. And it's a daily choice, sometimes hourly choice, that we make. What's going to get the upper hand here? Is it going to be the Holy Spirit? Am I going to let that inform my mind? Or is it going to be the old devil and the temptation and the circumstances? Is that going to inform my mind and what comes out of me? What's it going to be? I would like to also just suggest that I do believe that for some of us, maybe all of us, but at least some of us, we sometimes have entrenched habits that we have allowed patterns to develop in our lives before conversion that are not good, that are actually quite devilish, as the, uh, as the Bible would call it. And they're especially addicting or um, uh, besetting to us. Th- these things happen. Um, in other words, if a person had a smoking problem before he's converted, will he the next day not crave nicotine? Well, there have been testimonies of people that have that would testify that they, they indeed did experience what they would consider a, a miraculous deliverance from that particular habit or craving. But there's far more testimony of people that had to wrestle with that thing and had to daily, hourly, maybe minute by minute, maybe with the aid of prayer and fasting and prayers from brothers and sisters, wrestle and battle with that. And maybe they didn't win it all in one week. Maybe there was some falling back, but they knew what they wanted, and they had the Holy Spirit to inform them, but that didn't necessarily free them of a battle, necessarily. And we could, we could 
Name other things. That's just one that's that's perhaps easy. This particular person I was I was uh, chatting with. Um, obviously, he told me he said, you know, when things cross my path, I just blow up. That's that's his go-to method of dealing with things that cross his path is just a tirade. Well, you know, if that's what if that's how you've dealt for thirty years with your problems, you're probably going to have to work it. Um, you're going to have to tap into the grace of God in a in a big way, and it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna require some diligent thought reorientation the next time something crosses your path. This is hard, and so it's much easier to do than uh, two different things. Either you can give into the temptation, give up in defeat, and say, "I'll never get it. I'm not a Christian. This is proof." I, it's not going to happen. And so we just give up and walk away from it. God just wasn't big enough for me. Or what, what is much more common is very easy and actually has an air of humility about it. And that is to emphasize that I am indeed a sinner saved by grace, which is, by the way, a true statement. But instead of emphasizing the grace, we emphasize the sinner. I am a sinner saved by grace. And so thus, just be, because I'm a sinner, these things will just happen. You can't expect me to be perfect. Because you can't expect perfectness, um, let's just be satisfied that a vice or two is just going to be what I have to live with and what you're going to have to live with, and that's just going to define who I am. I'm going to read this verse to you. Paul gives to the the Philippian church. He goes, not as though I have already attained, and neither am I already perfect. He said, I'm not a perfect person. He said, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but I do this. I forget the things that are behind I reach forward to the things that are before me, and I press for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So we have two two choices. We can either do what Jude calls turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and say, you're going to have to deal with it. You're just going to have to accept that that is me. And this this pet sinner, too, is just what I'm going to have for the duration of my life. Or you can do like Paul and say, Look, I'm not perfect, but I know who is, and I'm pressing for that person, and I'm going to forget that I lost my temper today, yesterday. I'm not going to do it today. I smoked that cigarette yesterday, but I'm not going to do it today. By the grace of God, I will not do it today. Is, is God not big enough to make that happen, you suppose? You think for 12 hours, God could not keep a person from losing his temper. For 12 hours, God couldn't keep a person... With, with the aid of the Spirit and the prayers of the saints from smoking a cigarette. How big is our God? The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 6, 1, let us go on to perfection. We may not be perfect today, but let's strive for that. Even though we may never attain it, as Paul says, that still should not be something we shouldn't strive for. Paul gives Timothy a little clue here, 2 Timothy 3. He says, 
The scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So I think the real answer to this question is is maybe simply this. Can I, as a Christian, grasp the seriousness of sin in the sight of God? I think that is perhaps the biggest problem. I simply don't grasp the exceeding sinfulness of sin. I don't get it. I don't get what that looks like in the sight of an absolutely holy God who has never sinned ever and despises sin. I'm a human. I live around sin. And so it's hard for me to grasp how that looks in the sight of a holy God. I fail to get the concept in Romans 6.23 that says the wages of sin is death. End of story. That's the wage of sin. You serve sin, it will pay you a wage. It will be death. But there's an antidote in that same chapter in Romans 6, verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin. All right? Reckon yourselves. That's your job. You... You you just flee from sin. You'd be like Joseph. You recognize that. Sin for what it is. So you reckon yourselves dead indeed into sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, once we have that, it says, Therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it unto the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, But yield yourselves unto God, as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. I simply can't add anything to those verses. Again, it comes back to a choice. What are you going to yield yourself to today? What am I going to yield myself to today? As an instrument of unrighteousness or an instrument of righteousness? Basically, what this boils down to is, will I identify sin as sin? Will I call it that? Will I repent of it? Will I ask God for help to overcome this sin and perhaps solicit the helps of others and make a conscious, concerted effort to avoid it at all costs? Does that mean I will never do it again? Not necessarily, but we sure don't want to, and we're going to sure do everything we can by the grace of God not to. John also has... Two verses I think we need to bring into this, uh, this conversation that are very helpful. First John 3 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not con- commit sin. Alright? We could read that and is better read, does not habitually practice sin. For his seed, for the seed of God remaineth in him, and he cannot habitually practice sin because he is born of God. God's a holy God. You can't habitually live in sin, and expect that you can say, oh, I'm a child of God. It doesn't work that way. However, John also has this to say in chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye may not sin. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that's our answer. So rather than Again, I think it goes back to our mind. Rather than groveling in all the past mistakes and sins and and failures that we've had, if we've confessed that with with our advocate, 
leave it there. It's under the blood and just leave it there. And let's do as Paul, let's look ahead. Let's, let's, let's press for the mark. And, w- and we can do this by the grace of God. There simply, I don't believe, is any need that a Christian should live in perpetual sin without any, any, um, um, ground being gained. Like, in other words, we just can't gain any ground at all. I believe there has to be some growth. I think if we're, if we're living in this condition, it, it probably means that we have not purposefully resolved to appropriate the grace of God as we should, or we have interpreted wrongly what the grace of God actually is. It either means that, or that we enjoy the sin just a little too much to give it up. I just like them, them cigarettes a little too much. And so I got a choice here. I'm going with the cigarettes, perhaps. Or, thirdly, we won't, we don't, or we choose not to identify sin for what it is. You know, I'm going to conclude it with this. Honestly, the question of how long can I live in a state that displeases God or retain sinfulness in my life and God claims me as his child, I don't think we know the answer to that. And here's why I think that. If you read through the, the letters to the church churches in Revelation, many of those churches, God says, here's some things I appreciate about you and your church, but here are some things I don't. And on several occasions he said, I'm there, and I'm looking at the candlestick, and I'm just about ready to pull it out. So those those Christians, obviously their candle was still there. Those Christians were still Christians. They had issues in their lives that Jesus said, I have now exposed that to you, and you've got to deal with that thing. Because if you don't, I'm going to pluck your candlestick. Now, none of us want to be in that condition, do we? So rather than asking the question, How long can I sin like this and be a Christian? Let's ask, how soon can I get rid of that sin with God's help? That's the real question.